And welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is Listen Local, Think Global. We are very happily partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, where our episodes are aired before being posted to SoundCloud. So you can listen live or listen later. We just want you to listen. Fall is here, and with it, our fourth season with interviewing writers. I am your host, Tannis McDonald, here to introduce you to our guest writer for this episode, the short story writer and scholar, Carol Duncan who speaks to us about the surprisingly short distance between her research work and her emerging career writing short fiction that is inflected with Caribbean cultural narratives and history. Carol Duncan teaches in the Department of Religion and Culture at Wilfrid Laurier University, and she is the winner of a 3M National Teaching Award. Her research focuses on Caribbean religions in transnational contexts, as well as popular culture and women and gender studies. She has been a visiting professor at Harvard, and she appears in the award-winning documentary Seeking Salvation, A History of the Black Church in Canada. Carol is the author and editor of five books, and her short fiction and personal essays appear in the online speculative fiction magazine Augur and on the website run by the Wabash Center. That's where her powerful essay about female inheritance and power appears. It is titled, Write Your Name, Claiming Space and Writing Ourselves into Existence. And I urge you to look it up because I loved this essay and think you will too. Now, here's my talk with Carol. Good morning, Tannis. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's a delight to have you. And I know we've been talking about having you on the podcast for some time. And I'm very happy to be kicking off season four with a talk with you and with your writing. Now, you and I have known each other for a little while, but uh, it has more recently come to my attention that you are doing this kind of creative work. So I'm really eager to hear more from you. Indeed, we have known each other as scholars as fans of writing at literary events. I've heard you read, I've read your work. And for me, creative writing and sharing it is a relatively new turn, but I've written for a long time. I mean, there's that question of uh, what is writing? Is it really different if you're writing across genre? And uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you about that. I'm a huge fan of cross-genre work. I'm, I'm very interested in poetry that sounds like debate. I'm interested in critical creative work, and that's something that I, I see coming up for you as well, combining your scholarly uh, expertise with creative nonfiction. I'm, I'm fascinated with that. And of course, much of your work in the short stories where you're working with Caribbean cultures and what you know of, about community and religion in Caribbean cultures are showing up in these short stories that you've been writing. Yes, they have been. I think these various aspects of my work as a scholar, as an academic, as a researcher, it fuels the short stories. The stories have a way of not behaving themselves. <laughs> I like that. How are they misbehaving? The misbehavior has to do with things like time, boundaries of time, physics, 
our way of thinking about history as being chronological or linear. And so these are stories which allow me to think through and across time periods and to really consider how the historical influences the contemporary and also what we might refer to as folklore or the folkloric. So revisiting those characters and what they might have to say about human emotions changes within the human life cycle, gender issues. They are rich in terms of the symbolism and also in terms of what they can allow you as a writer to do with your imagination. So that's the misbehaving. That's the fun part. But it's also the tricky part, too. Yeah, indeed. You know, and immediately I think of Faulkner uh, writing that the past isn't over. It's not even past. Right. I agree with you. William Faulkner's work for me is very important in that regard. The interior focus on characters' motivations, narratives that are not linear, stories that are told from multiple perspectives. I think of Faulkner, I think of Toni Morrison as well, with their concern about place and space and time but also the kind of bleeding of the past into the present moment, and in uncomfortable ways too, sometimes quite literally in As I Lay Dying, which I was introduced to over 40 years ago. And I feel in a way that that novel is still with me and Toni Morrison's Beloved. Yes. Um, And those are, I think, prime examples of that bleeding of the past into the present moment in terms of ghosts and haunting in Beloved with Faulkner, very poor family trying to live out its matriarch's last wish, which is her burial. Oh, indeed. I love that. That's, I think those are two very important connections. And I'm really glad you, you mentioned uh, Morrison. You know, years ago, I saw her speak at Convocation Hall in Toronto, and it was so great. I've watched many of her interviews and videos in various contexts, um, including meeting audiences and scholars as well. So Morrison, for me, is a very important person as a writer, also as a scholar, and she was an editor of other writers for a very long time. So I appreciate also that she came into writing kind of midlife in terms of her first novel. So that's important to me, too. And I always remember that she's uh, one of the first people I ever read who said, I couldn't find the book I wanted to read, so I had to write it myself. And I thought, yes, that's excellent advice for for any writer. Write the book that you would want to read. Yes, that resonates with me. The stories I write are stories that I've thought about or they run through my mind if I am, it could be triggered by visual imagery, perhaps reading a historical document and the question of, well, what happened? Or what would that person's life have been like? We're only seeing the back or the shadow of that person. They're not really the focus. The wealthy, high class, high status person is maybe the focus in this particular image or portrait. But what about the food that's there? Whose hands prepared that food? Whose hands dusted down that table or made those clothes? That's often a jumping point for my imagination to think about those lives 
that they've been hemmed in by servitude and mm-hmm. forced servitude in terms of the, the stories that I've been writing. So when you meet a new group of people nowadays, um, how do you describe yourself? Do you find that this has been changing in recent years? It has changed. Depends on who I'm meeting. There's always <laughs> the question of place and where do you come from and how are you related to the land that you're in now, and then what you do. For me, in an academic context or a creative context, or even just meeting somebody and it's the proverbial elevator, water cooler conversation, I'll say what I do. I'm a researcher. I'm a professor. I'm a writer. And the change is to make a distinction and to say, I also am a creative writer sharing that creative writing more publicly through publications. Now, I know that a book that you uh, published in 2008, and I know that this is a scholarly work, but I was really intrigued by the title you chose for it. You chose the title, This Spot of Ground. And I think it's an auspicious title as it really seems to resonate with the creative work that you eventually are now doing. Can you tell us a little bit about how that kind of research, that, that idea of what it means to be present in this place, in this spot of ground, and perhaps, of course, in a, a spot of ground that is both past and present at the same time, as we've been discussing, how does your scholarly work overlap with your creative work? In many ways, they feed each other. And I'll address the title of the book, This Spot of Ground. The subtitle is Spiritual Baptists in Toronto. And that book was uh, written about the emergence of the spiritual Baptist tradition in a diaspora context in Canada. And the spiritual Baptist faith originated in the Caribbean. It's one of several Caribbean religions in which Christianity is reinterpreted through the perspectives, ritual experiences, and history of enslaved and indentured peoples to reflect that historical experience of servitude, but also to rebel and resist against it. It's also a way in which African-based traditions within a colonial context were able to survive. Here is a tradition that emerged over 200 years ago in the Caribbean, and now here it is in Toronto in another diaspora context of post-Second World War migration. I heard the phrase, this spot of ground, used in church worship contexts. It would be a greeting, here we are on this spot of ground. What it signaled was the migratory experiences of members of the church, the idea that the sacred is embodied in the person and that it is mobile and it comes to rest on particular places and spaces where that person happens to be. So the sacred, is it embodied in a particular edifice or building or is it instead alive within the individual person and that person meeting with others in community? Well, it's very much the latter, which can then be imbued or experienced in particular physical spaces. So the phrase resonated very strongly uh, for me as a way of 
summarizing or encapsulating that experience of a sacrality or sacred experience, sacred life, spiritual life, which is tremendously mobile and fluid and moves with people, but is also recognizes the ground on which one lands or happens to be, whether by choice or whether pulled there by other circumstances. Within my work, my work is, as a creative writer, is preoccupied uh, with Caribbean experiences so far, historically, but also leading into the present as well, too. And so the idea of ground on which we land, either by choice, it's a migratory experience, or it's a forced migration in terms of enslavement or indentureship. The idea of being thrown up onto landscapes, shore lines, beaches, terrifying rock faces. These are all elements that appear in those stories. And for me as a writer, the idea of trying to understand what it must have been like to be torn out, ripped out of a particular circumstance, time, and experience, and suddenly transported into another, and you have to make a go of it or perish. What is that like? And that's why I think the speculative in terms of genre of uh, storytelling and writing appeals as much as it does because it allows that fluidity to explore those spots of ground. But writing in Canada, and we're having our conversation today, uh, and this is an auspicious day in Canada, uh, which recognizes the experiences of Indigenous peoples, and particularly folks who experienced the tragedy and the tumult of the residential school system. For all of us who are here on this spot of ground, wherever that may be, right now I'm in Kitchener-Waterloo, and uh, this is the space of Haudenosaunee neutral Anishinaabe peoples. These are traditional lands. I'm here as a woman who has emigrated twice, born in England of Windrush migrants from London, England to the Caribbean to Antigua and from Antigua to Canada 50 years ago. I'm very conscious of what it means to be on a spot of ground that is not necessarily one's own ancestral lands, but one is here as a guest, one is here as a prisoner or enforced in terms of the historical work that I do about enslaved Africans in the Americas and trying to imagine their experiences. Always there and present is enslavement of Africans took place on lands appropriated or expropriated really from Indigenous peoples. That is a historical fact. And so if you say this spot of ground, I have all of those resonances for me in terms of the scholarly work and also in terms of the creative writing. 
Thank you so much for that. We are recording on uh, September 30th, which is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And it is, of course, extremely important for those of us who are settlers to this particular place to think about what our relationship to Indigenous peoples and to our very, very violent colonialism history that has involved uh, what is often known as the settlement of this land. But of course, in many ways, that is deeply unsettling and we ought to be unsettled by it. The idea that that history is not just history, but is absolutely present in all the choices that we make. I really like your approach to thinking about migrations as both chosen and forced and uh, about being implicated, whether we liked it or not, to being implicated in uh, the kind of um, colonial violence that, that has been A, enacted on, on some of us and B, we have enacted on, on others. I want to turn to the speculative as you've been talking about it. And I wanted to get your definition of what speculative fiction is. I know that this is a kind of definition that like moves back and forth <laughs> and it depends who's writing it. And some people say, no, that's more science fiction. No, that's more fantasy, etc. But uh, within how you're uh, writing, how do you think of the speculative? I think of the speculative as a genre that allows one to explore time, space, and being beyond our conventional notions of what it means to be alive, physically embodied in a particular space and place. That for me is what the speculative is about. How that speculation happens that's where we get the different genres. So whether it is understood as being fabulous or fantasy, whether it's drawing on folkloric figures, as some of my stories do, that these are figures from Caribbean folklore. In Piniwali, for instance, the figure that's there, they refer to in the story as Retourné, but it's Duen from the Trinidad and Tobago context. The spirits of children who have died before baptism and who return and often talked about as, are they real? Are they being used to frighten children into obedience and so on? The speculative turn for me in that sense draws on a folkloric character to try to understand what it means like the existential predicament of a child who's been traumatized during the period of enslavement. So speculative for me is the ability to extend one's imagination through a variety of means and methods. For others, it's more science-based, physics, chemistry, biology, environmental sciences, to try to extend the imaginary about space, place, and being. I have been interested in reading some of your short stories, uh, certainly in the folkloric, although, you know, I kept struggling with that idea of the folkloric. I think it's folkloric. It's folkloric, you know, married to these ideas of, you know, power and belonging and that sort of fluid time. I was also interested in the fact that many of your stories explore girlhood or young womanhood, right? And so in Piniwali, the story you were just talking about, wherein the girl is 
in some ways haunted and in some ways uh, sort of joined to her sister who died very young, who died unbaptized. And of course, this happens in a number of ways where young female characters discover something about their power or their connections to the past. Was it in Peenywally where the, the girl is pulled into the rain barrel? Is that the one? No, the girl pulled into the rain barrel is in the story Mahogany Birds, which is forthcoming this November in issue uh, 6.2 of Augur magazine. Okay, sorry for mixing them up. But I think that this just means that, you know, there, there are many ways that you are exploring this idea of connection to a supernatural that isn't just whimsical, but it has much to do with post-slavery era in, in, in the Caribbean and what it means to survive and to inherit that history, right? To not have lived through uh, the slavery themselves, but to have the deep family connections to inherit mm -hmm. those that kind of trauma. I'm not surprised that you made that link because the stories are set in an island called Ile Marie Josephine, which is fictional, but the history of the island is not fictional. The history is based on the Eastern Caribbean and British and French colonialism within the Eastern Caribbean from the 17th century through to just at the beginnings of the decolonial period of independence movements of the 1960s. So you have about 400 years or so that these stories span, either with characters or with reference points to them. And the piece that you mentioned with Mahogany Birds where the child in the 1960s, she's pulled back. I think it is time to stop talking about the stories and to actually hear you read from one of them. I'll invite you to read right now and to pull us into your world. I'm going to read a little excerpt from Peony Wally, and I should say that Peony Wally in Jamaica refers to fireflies. I also think about it as the little light as well. So Peeliwali in Scotland and Peeliwali in a Jamaican context, it's a little light of hope and a tiny insect and a tiny girl coming into her power. So this will be Peeliwali. At night, just as she was falling asleep, Sari felt the urge to leave the scratchy grass palette the drip-drip of water on the floor when it rained through the wattle roof played a liquid rhythm to her breath that would carry her away from here, from this place and this time. She felt as if a part of her could just get up and walk away and leave everything behind, the pallet, the cabin, mommy's sleeping body surrounded by the babies she cared for while their mothers stole away on their own wanderings. And strangest of all, her own sleeping form curled in on itself like Peeniwali. But she was afraid, and she would dig her nails into her palms and shake her head like a sensei fowl dance to rouse herself from the heavy feeling of a sleeping wake. Sometimes she had even found that her bladder had released itself when none of her ministrations worked, and she had half-stepped away in a soft, luminous glow carried by her breath. Mommy had tried to prepare her for the fall. Ne tombe pas, ma fille. 
in the hope that the special devilment that befell most of the young girls and many of the young boys too would somehow bypass her little gal picnic. Sari was Mommy's grandchild, second born of twin girls to her fifth daughter Malat, just a few years after Malat had passed her first blood. The first of the twin girls, Tulin, took one breath in this world, went back to the earth, and was returned to the earth immediately. And if it, the devilment, must meet her, do God bless, let it bypass and bypass the heart. The rest can fix, but the heart, if it mash up early, can't fix proper again. Thank you very much for reading that piece from Pini Wally. I was intrigued in this reading as I was the first time I read it on the page was the portrait of a curled child, like a, a type of insect and how she also steps away from her body and can view the body. Later on in the story, not to, to spoil it, because people will <laughs> can, can read it and, and uh, watch for this. When she meets her, her sister who has died um, before she was baptized, there seems to be a, a kind of debate between what it is to have a body and be subject to the devilment of having a body. That's a, a key part of the story, of course. And the temptation of bodilessness right? The temptation of, of what the other child offers, which is a kind of freedom, uh, free from parental mm. control, free from having a body, free from having to obey adults, right? It's quite a temptation to see offered to a child in this, in this context. Yes, it is. These are children who are under slavery in the 18th century in this imagined Eastern Caribbean island somewhere in the Leeward Island chain that we imagine that Il Marie Josephine is, the inhabitants at this point are predominantly people of African descent under enslavement. And the 18th century, as we know, is the period of the greatest transportation of Africans into the Caribbean connected to the production of sugar on sugarcane plantations and a kind of 24-hour discipline. And this affected men, women, and children. So children would work in the small gang. And in the segment that you reference in the story, Sari, the young girl, meets her sister, her twin, Tulin. And Tulin died shortly after birth, was not baptized and was buried. And Tulin says, we see you. We see you there doing all that hard work. Why don't you come and join us? And being subjected to beatings and all of this. Come in the forest. We're here. We're good. That We run around. We play. We see you running away from enslavement, those of you who make it out into the forest. And Zari rejects and says, I have to go back to the day world. Don't you miss us in the day world? Now, in terms of the chronology, because Tulin is born first, Tulin is actually, from an African time perspective, Tulin is actually the younger of the two. She has to come before her sister, and her sister is Sari. So this is drawing on notions of the Ibeji uh, from the Nigerian uh, context here in the 18th century. I don't mention all of that, but it's floating 
underneath in this story that these two are tied together in a sacred bond and this separation has happened. But the invitation to freedom, Sari sees as an invitation that is fraught also with loss and separation. And I was really concerned about the emotional existential predicament of young children under conditions of enslavement. And this story really is born out of that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, that comes across very clearly. And that was one of the, the things I thought listening to that conversation between the um, the two girls and, of course, uh, the sort of multiple nature of of the devilment of the body, right? And um, and mommy's prayer that she, that Sari will be able to rise above the devilment. But of course, who can when you are uh, being abused? And yeah, and just all of that. And so I really appreciated the amount of time that you spent on Sari's decision, right? This this impossible choice that she has offered to have the freedom of not having a body or to continue to live and and live under very difficult circumstances, right? Could it be the air that we breathe in our lungs? Coming up soon from October 27th to 29th, it is the annual Wild Riders Festival in Waterloo as organized and run by our good friends at the New Quarterly Literary Magazine, headed up by novelist Pamela Malloy, who has been a guest on the show. The weekend is packed full of author talks, writing workshops, and books, books, books. It's a great way to hone your craft, meet other writers, and have a good old literary schmooze. That's the Wild Riders Festival from October 27th to 29th. For more information, go to their website at wildriders.ca and check out all the fun details. We'll be there, and we hope to see you. Now back to my talk with Carol Duncan. I have noted in another short story that you've written called Sybil Sweet, and you've noted to me that the, the story is about transitions of all kinds. Really, and I, and I think um, you know, in Peeny Wally, we see a girl on the, on the cusp of a transition, a cusp of a difficult choice, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in Civil Suite, um, that one takes place uh, very much in a, a kind of very recent past, a couple of decades ago. And there's a young woman. Our protagonist there, your protagonist there, is attending a nursing program in Canada while caring for her uncle, her beloved uncle, who in some ways has been a kind of cool father figure to her, the young, fashionable uncle, right? And unfortunately, this in this story, he's dying. In his dying and her care for him is where we see the fantastical emerge. Can you speak a bit about the, the choices that you make in this story? What an interesting question. <laughs> I wanted to write a story in which we meet characters where the obvious is not stated, either because they cannot face it or because there has been a tradition within the family, within the community, within a social circle to not state the obvious. And so in this case, it's, uh, and there's several of them, this Vic's illness, it's not named in the story as in his family, Vic's sexuality, Vic's relationship is not named. Everybody knew and didn't know about Vic and Hescat. 
And yet there is still loving relationships, uh, respectful care. And so my choices as a writer was how to reflect that. If I say everything, am I saying what should have been said out loud at the time? Or am I, in fact, conforming to the kind of thinly veiled, don't ask, don't tell, closeted, transparent closet, that is, of Vic and Heskett's experience? So I wanted to be true to the time and the experience, but to also show the caring and also not everyone subscribes to those particular modes. But there is also a cost as well. And it's the time period. So it's the 80s and it's unnamed Vic's illness. In my mind, it's an HIV AIDS and it's unnamed, and it's the cruelty as well of the of the unnaming, but there's also the kindness of the caring from his niece, Janine, from his mom. And so we as readers, we have to fill in that back part. We've lived it. We know about it. What does it mean here? So the story is entitled Civil Sweet. Civil Sweet is a kind of orange it's the Seville orange in more standard forms of Canadian English. It's the orange that's thick, bumpy skinned, bitter, and some may know it if you eat marmalade. It's one of the cultivars that's used for marmalade. It was introduced in the Caribbean where it is a part of the big fruit tree that provides sustenance in terms of juices. can eat the fruit as well, but it's awfully bitter. I grew up in a yard that had a civil sweet tree. I enjoy drinking juices made from civil sweet, but it is the bitterness and the sweet, the really tough, bumpy skin and the soft, tender fruit within. What's added or subtracted from it? You know, people talk about lemons and making lemonade and so on. And I thought in this context, the metaphor here is civil sweet. And there is the actual grove itself in Vic's memory where he is transitioning and he pulls the environment and the past to him in Toronto. And Janine, who has the gift of second sight, who can dream while awake, experiences a bit of it and is freaked out by it, but nevertheless is there and attends to her uncle. So those are the, the difficult choices that the story talks about, and it's under the surface. It's there. It's threaded through. And I don't make it easy for the reader. Sorry, readers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't make it easy for the readers with this story. It, it doesn't pull anything at all. Nor should you, quite frankly. I think it's a difficult situation to write about. It's a diff difficult history. And I was interested in, again, sort of the, the unspeakability of his illness. Although, you know, if uh, anyone had lived through that era, as, as I had, I, you know, I had my suspicions that that's what was going on. But I think you're right about being true to the history of how particular communities and particular people approached having HIV, you know, and because in many ways it was unspeakable. And so the unspeakability there and the way you, you say it and don't say it really suggests that it's 
being thought of as a parallel to other kinds of oppression as well. Yes. Right. Which I liked. And, you know, as I've noted about your, your other female characters, we see the young woman here, Janine, just on the edge, on the cusp of discovering things about her history, things about her beloved uncle, and of course, things about her own ability to perceive things. She's a woman, I would say she is in her, she's like 19, 20 years old. She's not a child. She's an immigrant to Canada. She's training as a nurse. But we also have the dichotomy of medical staff, medical training, modern Western medicine, if you will. And that is juxtaposed with the grandmother figure who is Vic's mother and her gifts of prophecy and of healing that they kind of coalesce in Janine being sent to Canada to train as a nurse. And she's saying, see, I told you. Ancestors have said this is a child who's here to heal and she's a healer. And how those two sets of understandings mesh together in the figure of Janine. The story is also something that I think asks readers to think about the civil suite areas that they may have encountered, whether it's health issues that are deemed to be unspeakable, so uh, reproductive health issues for women, mm -hmm. mental health issues, you know, broadly speaking. These are things that are apparent they're there, and yet there's a way of either addressing in a surface way, but not really getting at the heart of the matter, or in some ways, talking about it, but not talking about it. It's messy. It's a very messy area. But the speculative allows one to enter into it and present it. Is there a resolution? There is a resolution in the sense of Vic's transition peacefully, Vic's transition in a way in which he's in his own house with somebody who loves him. And there's also the appeal to the material, literally in this case, the trousers, right? The herringbone. They're right. spiritual vestments here. You mentioned a little earlier that you have, of course, lived all over the world and had the migrant experience twice in your life. I know that you have uh, started to write uh, what I think of as creative nonfiction, and I know you, you've referred to these as sort of the, the work you've done as blog posts, but I'm kind of craving a, a whole book of your blog posts, <laughs> the, kind of, the kind of things where you consider uh, certainly your own creative process and your own creative history, how you became who you are, how you became a scholar and an activist and a writer and a feminist, etc. right? And I think of two of these short essays. One is called write your name, which features an encounter with your formidable grandmother, who I was fascinated with, and I want to hear a little bit more about that. And the other one I'm thinking of is Story Bones, where you talk about some of the ways that growing up in the Caribbean made a writer out of you, made a writer uh, out of the way you observe the community and the way uh, the community encouraged you. So yeah, I think they read like the beginnings of a personal essay collection. And I wanted to ask you if there, if you had been thinking ahead to that. I have indeed been thinking about that and I've begun working. These are bits and pieces that come out of that, that connect specifically with teaching and learning and with pedagogy. 
And so these are blog posts that are on the Wabash site, but I have a larger collection of writings that I've been doing. And of course, the question is editing. You know, is it one seamless narrative or is it kind of like how I think about life in general, my life in particular? It's hard to see the linear flow through unless you've already lived it. And then even then you're kind of imposing a kind of order on it. That remains the challenge. But yeah, it is something that I am working on. I often think about the idea of writing a life. What do you have to say? What do I have to say? I've lived a few places. I wouldn't say all over the world, but, you know, uh, I think for me, uh, what has really shaped my experience is having lived in three countries by the age of seven. That experience of being born in England, leaving young, living in Antigua, moving to Canada, those landings, those shorelines for me have, I think, shaped my life here and then being in the U.S., going there very frequently uh, in the past and having actually lived there almost a year, 10 months, I guess, that those things have certainly shaped my perspectives on myself, my identity, the way that I relate to people, circumstances. I always have a sense that I'm going to land on my feet and it's going to be all right. I'm going to encounter some folks and see what's going on here. Any place I go, I always want to walk around and get the street level walking kind of view. I want to do that as opposed to sit in the top of a tour bus. Not that there's anything wrong with that for folks that want to do that, but I think that those experiences for me early of the street view and walking, that's a part of what's shaped that. Last uh, season, we had a, a fascinating talk with historian Peggy Plett about the Black history in Berlin. And she leads an actual walking tour where she takes the, the group to all these places. I was fascinated to read in another short essay of yours that in uh, Searching for Zora, that the wonderful Harlem Renaissance writer uh, Zora Neale Hurston actually passed through Kitchener uh, on yes. one of her famous like road trips, and yes. you have been searching for evidence of that, either textual or actual geographical evidence of it. Yes, I have been. It's an existential search in the sense of thinking about this spot of ground here as in southwestern Ontario. It's connected with a larger trajectory of Black experiences cross-border with the United States. Canada is an interesting place, I think, because of its size as a country and the north-south divisions, segments, really, when we think about them. I always think of southwestern Ontario. What is the connection with going across into Michigan? What about crossing over into upstate New York or eastern Pennsylvania? What does that mean for those of us who are here today and living on this land? Well, you begin to unpack that and you're thrown right into the middle of pretty tumultuous history of colonial times, civil war, underground railroad, 
and intrepid women like Zora Neale Hurston, who are directing their own travels cross-border and telling us what it's like. She's very sly, saying that it looked kind of pretty much on this side of the border like it looked on the other side. And I say she's sly because it's a way of commenting on segregation. And for those of us who are Canadians, many of us are introduced to narratives where there's a sense that that happened on the other side of the border then, but not here in Canada, not here in Ontario. Her narrative is hinting at something different. The other thing as well, too, is thinking once again about bodies in time and space and place. So the exercise of searching for Zora you know, where could she have possibly stayed? You know, Herb Green's Manual for Black Motorists that was published right into the 1960s to see if I can match up some places. Was she operating on a kind of mental oral tradition green book? So it's speculative, but it certainly shakes up the complacency of Southwestern Ontario historical presence and narrative and it introduces the possibilities of others. That's the importance of it for me. I think it would make a great short story. It makes a great essay, but I also, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, what if? <laughs> what if we so just slide if? time around and have Zora here, you know? <laughs> well, she was here. And she tells us she went through Kitchener, trying to imagine her staying someplace Downtown Kitchener, was there a guest house? Was she at the Walper? Like, is there a family somewhere that has a photograph that they took? You know, I appreciate the nudge to story that idea. Do mm. it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to invite you to read a, a little bit from one of these essays that I've been uh, talking about. So I'm going to read a little bit from... Write Your Name, Claiming Space and Writing Ourselves into Existence. And this is my encounter with my paternal grandmother, Johanna Duncan, also known as Teacher Kate to many people. She lived for just over 100 years, and she was a primary school teacher. She asked me to write my name. Write your name for me, please, she asked a sturdy index finger tapping on a piece of paper on the table at my aunt's house. She was my paternal grandmother, Johanna, or Teacher Kate, as many people called her, and she was visiting her family in Toronto from Guyana. She would have been in her 60s then, a compact Black woman with flawless skin, a kind, steady gaze, and a resonant alto speaking voice. You could hear the mixture of crisp and precise British-influenced English that would have been expected of school teachers of Teacher Kate's generation, born before World War I in a corner of Amazonia and at the edge of the British Empire. You could also hear the rhythms of Caribbean Creole speech, reflecting Guyana's cultural legacy of majority populations descended from enslaved Africans and indentured folk from the Indian subcontinent in China, among others. Teacher Kate's work in classrooms with children began before 1930 as a pupil teacher, a form of teaching apprentice of young teenagers that was regularly practiced in the English-speaking Caribbean in the early decades of the 20th century. 
write your name for me, please. So I picked up the pen and I wrote my first name in cursive and print. Write your whole name. I wrote my first and last name. My grandmother inspected my writing and complimented it while also giving some pointers to improve the cursive. Write it larger, she said. I wrote my name several times and each time I did so with more confidence than earlier versions. Now, I wrote my name every day in school on assignments and had done so for years. My friends and I even practiced our autographs. I had written my name years ago in my British passport as an elementary school student. This occasion, however, felt different. In the analog world of the late 1970s, just a few years before the launch of the digital age, my grandmother was inviting me to come to the table of knowledge to take up space and to write myself into the narrative in my own hand, boldly and confidently and with style. And I'll end there. I love that, <laughs> writing yourself into the narrative on the table of knowledge. That's just, I love it. I love it. And I, and I love how you write bigger and bigger in it, right? So take up that <laughs> space. Again, I want to encourage you to write more about her because she sounds like an amazing mentor figure to, to so many. She was, and she was a, a consummate educator, and her handwriting was a thing of beauty. It really was. Her cursive was beautiful, thing of beauty. So great. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your take on Canadian literature as an arts industry. You're in a, a bit of a unique position because you've been a writer for many years and a scholar for many years and are making this transition to doing more creative writing work. So you're a mature person who is also an emerging writer. And I'm afraid we don't really have a good term for someone who is uh, you know, a little older, i.e. not 21, and uh, an emerging writer. Has beginning to get your stories out in public changed your perception about how literature is received, how it's marketed, how it's distributed, and, and these kinds of things? It has. Uh, I want to start by saying that... I think there's room for many different kinds of emergent writers. So the idea that an emergent writer is tied to age solely, to being under a certain age, whatever it is, I think there are limitations there. I think that it's important to encourage folks at younger stage of life to explore and to publish. But I also think that there are many beginning points and that an emerging writer who is older, who has had a certain amount of life experience, different kinds of professional experiences, and different kinds of interests also has something to bring to the table. So am I a new writer? No. My publication history goes back over 25 years. So no, I can't claim that. In terms of sharing creative writing, Yes and no. I think there are always little stories around the edges of lectures, especially oral lectures. I remember a student coming up to me at the end of a lecture in the late 90s, and she said, I get it. You tell stories. It's like a big story. I get it. And you come back to it, and it's in the syllabus, and that's the outline, but you tell stories. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You got me. <laughs> like it kind of suck you in, but it's being deliberate about it. And of course, it's the speculative element. 
but it's shown me from this side as a writer who is trying to get their work out is labyrinthine navigation of getting the work out there. You write it, but it's sent out and there's a review process and it might get in or not, or there's editorial review and you got to change some stuff. It's a business. I've always known that as somebody who's organized book launches and, and book events that are tied in with book vendors and the author's publicist and all of that um, machinery of business behind the production of books. But being on the other side of it and being emergent and nascent in it, it's a very different perspective, certainly. Yeah. What has been most surprising for you from being in that kind of position? I would have to say the surprising part is feeling the trepidation because there's trepidation along the way. And I think different folks feel trepidation at different parts. For me, the trepidation is letting it go into the world. The perfectionist part that thinks I can make it better. It's going to be a different version or maybe there's some more research or something I need to do. But the lessons from other genre of writing, academic writing, essays, books, and so forth is it's a version right now. Let it go. See what some other folk think about it and get that input. Because I've learned that as an academic writer. But in the creative writing, that's the point of trepidation. It's the letting it go, having the confidence to let it go while battling in a way. It's kind of an internal battle that happens here. Is it ready? Do I need to do more? Uh, maybe I should include this paragraph. I love those sentences. So that's an insight, certainly. Thanks. I, I think you're right. I think everyone ought to feel a little trepidation of that. And, and we all ought to let it go as well. Both things. I let it go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know that you have uh, a story. It's the Mahogany Birds that we were talking about before. It's going to be out in Augur Magazine in November, Augur 6.2. It'll be online so people can uh, read some of this. I'd like to invite you just to give us a snippet to whet people's appetites. So mahogany birds is a euphemism. It's a term used in Antigua, and I've learned from a friend from Tobago. It means large flying cockroaches. That's what mahogany birds are. So we meet Shirley in her room at the start of bad weather, a hurricane. Four mahogany birds flew with desperate intensity across the wooden room, kerosene lamplight flickering on their dark brown shiny wings, beating the air at hummingbird speed. One maneuvered a short distance from the shiffer robe, which held the Beaulieu children's church clothes and good shoes. It landed on Shirley's left big toe. Tenting the white cotton sheets, her toe was probably not an intended target, but merely an obstacle in its flight path. Shirley's head was protectively covered, swaddled in the bedclothes, with a small opening left for her eyes to look out on the dimly lit room as she lay on her back in her bed. Patchwork quilt wings peeked out from her white cotton sheet cocoon. This position was unusual for her, as she typically slept on her stomach, her legs making a shape like a big number four, 
her head turned to the right towards the west door and the passageway leading to the modern part of the house constructed after the second world war she always looked because sometimes she felt like somebody was watching them you ready for what you might see cousin luke would tease her and then shirley and her brother on the steps after she and georgie sifted the weevil they shelled the pigeon peas sitting on the hot pavement of the kitchen steps excusing herself to get a drink of water she ran to the rain barrel at the back of the house Maman had forbidden her, but she had an overpowering desire to look in the barrel so she could glimpse her mother as a child. Then she would imagine what Daphne looked like, living in England paradise and having tea with the queen while eating fancy biscuits from a pretty tin. After all, she, Shirley Elizabeth, had been named after the queen. Most times when she looked, all she saw was rainwater and her wavering reflection. But sometimes, like today, a little girl looked back at her. Like Maman and Daphne, they had the same thick plaited hair, the color of sugar when it came to a high boil. Daphne and Shirley had large puss eyes and high foreheads. So did this little girl. When she looked to the left, the girl turned her head same way. When she was feeling jokey, the girl would turn her head the other direction. As they played, the girl's hand rise up out of the water fast, fast, and pulled Shirley by the shoulder of her marina, under which she, Shirley didn't fight. Thanks so much for, for reading a snippet of that. I, I, again, I encourage everyone to read Mahogany Birds when it comes out in Augur magazine, which is a wonderful online speculative fiction magazine in which you've been published twice. Yeah. Excellent. Carol, I really want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a delight to hear more about your work and, of course, to read it. I want to encourage uh, everyone to keep an eye out for your recent publications. I also want to thank you for joining us to kick off season four of Watershed Writers. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here and to, to have this conversation and to be able to delve into some of the writing. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Carol Duncan's short story, Mahogany Birds, featured in the November edition of Augur Magazine. And you'll be able to read it all online and find out exactly why I wanted this story to go on and on. And just a reminder to all our listeners, if you are reading local, remember to buy local too. From your local independent bookseller like Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, The Bookshelf in Guelph, or Rookery Books in Cambridge. And if you don't have the money to buy everything you want to read, you can request that your local library stock the book at the Reader Request tab on your library website. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Watershed Writers comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with the episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedwriters.ca. Coming up on the podcast, Sarah Tolmey talks about her methods of writing weird fiction. Award-winning novelist Carrie Snyder speaks about her latest book, Francie's Got a Gun. And playwright Alison Fishburne will be here to talk about her one-person show, church boyfriends, and other impure thoughts. All coming up on Season 4 of Watershed Writers. 
We are produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. In the studio, we are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is the show's founder and producer. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Uno.